Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Donald Trump is asking the Supreme Court to keep him on the presidential ballot in Colorado, setting up a historic showdown over whether his role in the January 6th, 2021 assault on the Capitol disqualifies him from office. The former president is asking the justices to overturn a Colorado Supreme Court ruling that declared him ineligible to reclaim the White House, the first time a court has ever invoked the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause to disqualify an ex-president. My guest is elections law expert Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Everyone seems to be assuming that the Supreme Court will take the case because of the novel constitutional questions, the national implications with challenges to Trump's eligibility filed across the country. The justices aren't obligated to take the case, but do you think they will take it? That's hard to answer. I think I kind of hope they take it because it is an important question. It's now gotten different answers from different state courts. A couple of state courts rejected the argument that Trump is barred from the ballot. Colorado recognized it, influenced in part by the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. The main secretary of state has taken an action. She's now being sued. The issue is percolating up in multiple states, and it certainly would be very useful for the Supreme Court to resolve it soon, one way or the other. Trump's petition attacking the Colorado ruling does so on several grounds, a lot of grounds. Mm -hmm. Is there one that you find particularly compelling? Honestly, I think he is really going at it in all directions, some of which are purely procedural and maybe kick the can down the road, which is, you know, the amendment only prohibits somebody from holding office. It doesn't affect who can be on the ballot. He's got some arguments that it's something that state courts can't handle, that it's outside the state court jurisdiction. So he has some arguments that are designed to kind of skirt the merits, which might mean that they come back later. He's got some arguments that are hyper-technical, I think. One about whether or not the president is an officer of the United States within the meaning of the Constitution. It sounds like a really odd argument. Of course, the president is an officer of the United States, but Trump's lawyers do have a, a plausible technical argument based on the language of the Constitution that maybe the president isn't picked up by that language. And then there's the ones that really go to what we might consider the heart of the fight, which is, was January 6th an insurrection and was was Trump engaged in it? And so we don't know. I mean, I think they're really finding on all fronts, procedural ones that argue that the Colorado court sort of screwed up Colorado election law and Colorado election procedure, technical ones about the meaning of officer of the United States, and maybe ones about was January 6th an insurrection and did he engage in it. Their brief covers just about everything. An argument that's gotten a lot of play is this, that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the office of the presidency and the oath he took when he was sworn in didn't count as one of the oaths mentioned in the amendment. And, you know, as we've discussed before, when you look at history, that sort of looks ridiculous. But if you look technically at the words of the Constitution... Does it seem more plausible? You've got it exactly right. The oath one strikes me as a little silly. 
provision of uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, basically says that this prohibition on holding office only applies to someone who has taken an oath to support the Constitution. And, of course, the president's oath is to preserve, protect, and defend. You could argue that support pretty much picks that up. So, I don't know, I find that argument kind of technical support for it, but thin. But, but whether the president is an officer of the United States within the meaning of 14.3 is a little trickier, because remember that provision is written, so it mentions the Senate, it mentions the House of Representatives, and then it mentions civil offices of the United States. So you might think, well, maybe the president, if he was mentioned, would have come first, and that's a funny way to pick up the president. And then the few times that that phrase, office of the United States, appears in the Constitution, at least two of them appears in the context in which the president is making appointments of offices or issuing commissions. So where the president is clearly treated as a separate person. On the other hand, if you look at the legislative history of the constitutional amendments, there's a lot of evidence that they meant to include the president. But it is, um, even though I think 99 out of 100 Americans, 999 out of 1,000 would have think, of course, the president's an officer of the United States. There is this plausible technical argument that, no, the president is the president. And when the Constitution uses the phrase officers of the United States, they mean everybody but the president. One non-technical ground that I think might put pressure on the Supreme Court to take the case is their argument that, quote, the Colorado Supreme Court decision would unconstitutionally disenfranchise millions of voters in Colorado and likely be used as a template to disenfranchise tens of millions of voters nationwide. And even his opponents in the Republican presidential primary seem to say, let the voters decide this. Yeah, I mean, that's a real tension between, you know, the notion of democracy as the voters getting decided, and the notion that we're a democracy governed by the rule of law. I mean, let's say he wasn't a citizen. I mean, if he's not a citizen, he's not eligible. And it's not clear to me that voters have a, a protected right to vote for an ineligible person, let's say a non-citizen, or somebody who's only 30 years old and not 35. So I think their argument that this is depriving the voters of the right to choose is implicitly saying they think he's eligible, that they think that 14.3 doesn't bar him. I mean, if the Constitution means anything, it's all of our rights provisions of the Constitution are designed to put some constraints on what voters can do or what you know, elected legislatures can do. And the First Amendment, the Second Amendment are all constraints on what voters can accomplish. So, I mean, I think as a political argument, it's a strong one. It has a lot of resonance in our system where we do believe that the voters should decide things. But it is in tension with the idea that we're not just a democracy, we're a constitutional democracy. And there are some rules. Rich, forgetting the legal arguments, I have this sort of gut feeling that this isn't a court that wants to be the court that stopped the leading Republican candidate from being on the ballot. I mean, echoes of Bush v. Gore, which, you know, is still controversial. So are they going to look for a way out of this, a technical way, perhaps? Well, I think at some point they're going to have to decide something. And there are ways of deciding this. I mean, that's the nice thing about the Trump brief is they've given them many ways to decide this that don't involve deciding whether or not January 6th was an insurrection. And some of these include the argument that I don't find persuasive, but some people do, is that 14.3 is what's called non-self-executing. That, in other words, it requires congressional legislation to implement it. 
and Congress clearly hasn't passed anything. I don't think that's a very strong argument, but it's something that an argument people can use. I do think the one about officer of the United States is a technical way out, though it would be a big decision to say the president is not an officer. I think there could be arguments about the flawed process that the Colorado Supreme Court used, the Colorado court system used, although that would leave this open to possibly another state, which was a better process doing it. So I do think they have a lot of options, but I, uh, I, I agree. With, I, I think it would be a very bold thing for the court to conclude that he's ineligible. And but you never know what's going to, I mean, and I do think there are many ways in which the court could find him eligible without passing on whether what happened on January 6th was an insurrection. You mentioned this. The Colorado court's ruling specifically addressed the Republican primary in the state. So right. would a Supreme Court decision apply just to the primary, or is it up to them to decide how broad it is? Again, it really exactly. It would depend on the language. I mean, I think the um, argument is, and this is one of the arguments that Trump raises, is that the 14-3 actually doesn't address elections at all. It addresses eligibility to serve, and therefore it might be enforceable only by Congress. I mean, that's one of their arguments, is that it doesn't say who can run for office. It just says who can serve, and so maybe the argument is the Colorado Supreme Court had no role in deciding who gets to be on the ballot, other than, you know, if they followed the process for getting on the ballot, and that the ultimate decision would be up to Congress, and that's one possibility. Because, you know, state courts have different procedures, rules, you know, state law, would any decision by the Supreme Court about Colorado apply to other states? Again, it depends on what they decide. I mean, um, one of the arguments Trump has raised is Colorado, the Colorado courts violated their own procedures for litigating disputes about who's eligible to be on the ballot. The Supreme Court agrees with that, then that's really good only for Colorado. But if Supreme Court says 14-3 doesn't apply to the president because the president's not an officer, that would presumably apply to every state. So all the parties, I believe, to the case have asked for the court to move quickly. But both rulings are on hold while the appeals move forward. So he is on the ballot in Maine and Colorado. So that gives the court some breathing room. Do you think that they can wait until after the primaries? Or Well, I mean, that, that that's certainly right. I mean, in some ways, the Colorado court said, we're going to stay our decision until January 4th. And then if Trump seeks cert and seeks Supreme Court review, we're going to stay it as long as it's pending. So, yeah, conceivably, this thing could just be indefinitely stayed. But then you get the main decision by this main secretary of state. Now, that's being challenged in the main courts. But if, if that sticks, if that lasts, I think her position was that Trump made a false filing because he said he was eligible. I mean, it's really that eligible eligibility. And that might not be limited to the primary. I haven't read her decision that carefully. But I think her, her claim is that he's simply not eligible which case I think would also apply to the general election. The court has this possibility of a case. Also, the question of presidential immunity is bound to come up to the court again. Right, And they've also decided that they're going to examine the validity of a law used to charge people, including Trump, in connection with 2020. I mean, it seems like this court is going to be part of this presidential election, in a way, I'm sure that 
most of the justices, certainly the chief justice, wouldn't want, but they're sort of forced into it. Yeah, I mean, some of these things they really, um, they've chosen, like they're the ones who agree to hear the case challenging the use of the particular federal statute about corruptly disrupting proceedings, whether or not that applied to what happened on January 6th. That one was a choice, but most of the others, they don't have much choice. That's true. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, the issues that surround Trump are unprecedented, but he has acted in ways that are unprecedented for a president. So it's not surprising that these amazing new cases that's coming up, the things that he has done or said to have done are really are unique in, in American history. I think it's going to be a long year, Rich. Thanks so much for your insights. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, everybody. It's me, Mickey Mouse. Say, you want to come inside my clubhouse? To make the clubhouse appear, we get to say the magic words. Miska, Muska, Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse, perhaps the most iconic cartoon character of all time, is now officially in the public domain. Well, at least the first iteration of Mickey, introduced in 1928 in the cartoon short Steamboat Willie. The copyright on Steamboat Willie has expired, like thousands of other copyrighted works published in 1928. That means that anyone can use that version of Mickey without permission. So Mickey Mouse fans, get ready for the darker version of your favorite friendly mouse. He's already being cast as the villain in horror movies like Mickey's Mousetrap. Gina, turn around, please, Gina! And there's Mickey lurking. It's a fate that befell another beloved children's character, Winnie the Pooh, after his copyright expired, when he and Piglet starred in Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Joining me to talk about the implications of Mickey being in the public domain is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, Disney has fought to keep its copyright of Mickey as long as possible. It lobbied the U.S. government, didn't it? 
So, yes, it did. It's a very interesting story, the history of durations of copyright in the United States. You know, the copyright is actually embedded in the Constitution of the United States. It expressly gives power to Congress to legislate copyrights for the protection of works, but then has a qualifier in the Constitution that says, for limited times, meaning that it can't be in perpetuity, the way trademarks potentially could. It has to be some set number of years. And when it was first enacted in the law, the first Copyright Act said copyright will last 14 years. And then over the uh, 19th century, that was expanded to 28 years. And then you have the famous 1909 reforms of the copyright laws. And one of the big issues was, is 28 years enough? Because the life of people was getting longer and longer as modern health practices were adopted and the country became wealthier. And you have this famous episode where Samuel Longhorn Clemens, i.e. Mark Twain, comes and testifies live before Congress. And one of the congressmen asks him, how long do you think the copyright should last? And Mark Twain famously said, well, I think it should be long enough to take care of my children, but the grandchildren can fend for themselves. <laughs> and that was literally you know, taken as holy writ. And so in the 1909 Act, which is one that's relevant for a lot of the works today that are coming in the public domain, provided for 28 years plus a single renewal of 28 years, so total 56 years. When we again reformed the Copyright Act in 1976, we got rid of this concept of a renewal. We went with something different. We went with life of the author plus 50 years, or if it was a corporate copyright, 75 years. And then Mickey Mouse became exposed. And so we have the story of how Disney repeatedly pushed to have the copyright term expanded. And in 1998, they got Sonny Bono. If you remember Sonny Bono from Sonny and Cher, he was chairman of the intellectual property subcommittee of the House. And so they went to him, along with other content providers, the big Hollywood companies, the big recording companies, and they convinced him that they needed to extend the term. And as you may recall, that was sort of moving along, but not quickly. And then Sonny Bono, tragically, was killed in a skiing accident. And the legislation was renamed the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act and suddenly got passed. And that provided for a bonus of 20 years for any work that was still in copyright. And Mickey Mouse's copyright ran out, if I recall, in 2003. And therefore, it got the benefit of this extra 20 years. And that brought the copyright through to December 31st, 2023, last week. And it has now expired. It's the original Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie that's entering the public domain, right? So he's entirely in black and white. He doesn't wear a shirt or those signature white gloves. He has no voice, a pointier nose, a long tail, and solid black eyes for pupils. It's not the version of Mickey Mouse that we know. No, it's not the version that you run into if you go to Disney World. A lot of people forget the origins of Mickey Mouse. The first film he appeared in was called Steamboat Willie. And it came out you know, shortly after The Jazz Singer, which was the first real talkie movie. And Walt Disney had seen it and had become convinced that the future of moving pictures was in talkies. And so Steamboat Willie was the first animated film with fully synchronized sound. And this just hit 
people so strongly that it proved everything that Walt Disney was thinking at the time correct, that this was the future of motion pictures. And so in preparation for this show, I went back and watched it again. It's only seven and a half minutes, and it's now obviously available on every YouTube channel that you can find because it's no longer copyrights in the public domain. And you've described it exactly right. You, the incredible thing is he never talks <laughs> in the movie. You know, there's lots of sound, lots of music including a sort of obnoxious rendition of Turkey in the Straw, but he never talks. And many of his physical characteristics are just different. You know, the one you notice immediately is the lack of the white gloves. And indeed, the name Mickey Mouse is not used. It's Steamboat Willie. And so what is now in the public domain is that story, that film, is in the public domain. And, you know, longtime court president says that a character in a story or a movie or a novel that comes in the public domain, then the character also comes into the public domain. But it is that character. It's limited to that character in Steamboat Willie. Two directors say they're going to release horror films with Steamboat Willie. A trailer for one entitled Mickey's Mousetrap has already been released. In the trailer I saw, Mickey was, he didn't speak, and he was just in black and white. Suppose someone colorized him or used his current voice? I think colorization would be fine, or filming it in color would be fine. The squeaky voice is something that we've, for fun, argued about within the copyright bar. There is one argument that that's not copyrightable in the first place. It's just a squeaky voice. There are others who say, no, 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 that's a character trait that's unique to Mickey and should be copyrightable. So that issue is actually up in the air. I mean, I saw the um, article in Variety, as you probably did, where Stephen Lamort was actually saying in announcing the movie that he carefully lawyered up. Yeah. <laughs> that he had a team of lawyers already thinking about how they could do this. And I think that's going to be one of the tricks, because Disney has always been aggressive about protecting its properties, particularly Mickey Mouse. That's one of the reasons they went in and got the extension. They were actually less afraid of the horror sort of genre portrayal of Mickey Mouse as opposed to the pornographic portrayal. And there was an unlawfully made movie, I think it's called Mickey Mouse and the Air Pirates that they sued over that was, as we now call it, the adult entertainment realm. But those are the sort of concerns that Disney's always had. Those are real, and it's going to aggressively protect it. Now, the important thing to remember, too, is that, turning away from copyright for just a second, the trademark in Mickey Mouse continues. And if you do anything that suggests that your use of the Mickey Mouse character somehow connects you or associates you or you are somehow affiliated with Disney, you're going to get a trademark lawsuit, set aside copyright. And that will be a very, very successful lawsuit, I think. Going back to the Mickey and the copyright, he can be colorized, but suppose they put his shorts in the Mickey Mouse red, the classic colors of today's Mickey Mouse. I mean, would Disney fight over that? I don't know if Disney would fight over that. I think it would be ill-advised to fight over um, that sort of feature. The gloves are actually in a different 
realm, in my view. The gloves have been a very significant, the white gloves, very significant for quite some time now. There have been ad campaigns involving just the gloves. I think that's a completely different than the color of the shorts. But I think you're going to see all sorts of attempts to try to define what is and what is not allowed, what is or what is not in the public domain. And keep in mind, this is not the first significant animated character to come into the public domain. Winnie the Pooh came into the public domain last year. And almost immediately, you saw the same sort of thing happen. There was a movie that came out called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, which was also a horror, a very bad horror movie that used the Winnie the Pooh character. And this year, in addition to Mickey Mouse uh, or Steamboat Willie coming to the public domain, you get Peter Pan and you get Tigger from the Winnie the Pooh series because the house on Pooh Corner is now in the public domain. That was the first J.J. Moon book in which Tigger was introduced. So that character is now in the public domain. So you just going to see a lot of this and based, as you said, on that trailer that's already been put out there. It just doesn't look like particularly good entertainment. It may make for a good news article in Variety or Hollywood Reporter, but it just doesn't look like it's going to make a lot of money, in my view. And uh, perhaps Tigger will be joining Winnie the Pooh and Piglet as they uh, slash their way through (laughs) another movie, a sequel. (laughs) We'll see about that. Coming up next, what about that title, Mickey's Mousetrap? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I've been talking to intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman about Mickey Mouse coming into the public domain. So what about the title of this movie, Mickey's Mousetrap? Is that a problem? I think it's it's certainly questionable. I think if that low-budget film had hired lawyers, they would have cautioned against using that. And I note that the untitled work coming out by Stephen Lamort later this year In their announcement, they were really careful to say, we're not using the name Mickey Mouse. They're going to use Steamboat Willie throughout the movie. And that indeed may be the title, although at the moment it doesn't even have a working title. And Mr. Lamort was careful to talk about how the first thing he did was hire lawyers who obviously convinced him 
to uh, use the name Steamboat Willie instead of Mickey Mouse. And that's, again, an example of how you have to navigate these potential traps to avoid generating a, a lawsuit by Disney. And it's, an, again, a sign of how you, know, you can be as creative as you want with the new product you're bringing out, but you got to get advice from the lawyers as to how to do this. And it seems like Mr. Bill Mort's done a pretty good job so far of, of anticipating some of the traps that might be out there. The Mickey Mouse traps. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't couldn't mean resist, that And I just couldn't resist. Now, some digital editors have edited the footage from Steamboat Willie to make it sound as if Mickey's using profanity. Is that allowed now? Uh, that's arguably now allowed. I mean, the film, Steamboat Willie, is out of copyright. It's in the public domain. It can be used in that way. And the fundamental rights, such as the right to derivative works, no longer exist. So it could be, be changed in ways like that, as much as the creative mind can figure out new things to do. It can be done, as long as they don't tread on a current copyright. So Mickey Mouse, you know, as you mentioned, it's the Disney logo. He's everywhere in Disneyland. He represents Disney to people. Do you think that something like Steamboat Willie, will it detract from the value of Mickey Mouse? I didn't even know about the Winnie the Pooh movie. Has that affected Winnie the Pooh in any way, or are these just sort of separate audiences? As far as I can see, you know, what's in the public realm, there's been no impact upon the value of Winnie the Pooh as a um, lovable and beloved children's character that, that continues on. I assume the same will be true of Mickey Mouse. The reality is most of these works that have come along are really low budget and are unlikely to catch the imagination of people and indeed are unlikely to be seen by their target audience, which is really young people, um, because they, they tend to be rated R. Uh, because of the violence. So I, I just don't see it happening. I know Disney has been for decades fearful of this, but maybe those fears were misplaced. I don't know. What's the difference really between the trademark of Mickey Mouse and the copyright for Mickey Mouse, the new Mickey Mouse? So the trademark is on the phrase Mickey Mouse, and to the extent that that is used in commerce, to identify a product or service of the Disney Corporation. The same with the image. The character Mickey Mouse, the current, there have been multiple iterations over the years, but you know, as each one comes free, it becomes possible for you to use that, the image of that character as long as you do not use it in such a way as to suggest an affiliation and association with Disney. You can't mislead people. And that's the tricky part where you have both a trademark and a copyright, as is the case here. And it's going to be a real challenge for some of the people wanting to use the Steamboat Willie character going forward to figure out how to navigate in such a way that you don't open yourself up for a charge of trademark infringement by suggesting an association or affiliation with Disney. In this horror vein, it's hard to see that happening take this new movie that's already been filmed, Barrett Mickey's Mousetrap, and you take that to a jury or to a judge, and you're going to say, no reasonable person is going to think that this has anything to do with Disney, because Disney would never denigrate its principal brand this way. And, and that's the test, is what would a reasonable 
person in the marketplace think upon seeing the new work. And it's just unlikely that they're going to think it's associated with Disney. But you've got to be careful if you move outside of obvious areas, such as horror, pornography, things like that, that clearly aren't going to be associated with Disney. And as Disney starts to move, as they just recently have done, into R-rated films, they may themselves blur the line a little bit. Also, several important literary works have entered into the public domain along with Mickey Mouse, including D.H. Lawrence's novel Lady Chatterley's Lover. So that means a person could just copy that novel and sell it. Absolutely. You could take it to Xerox machine, take the book to the Xerox machine, run off copies, and then take it out in the street and hawk it. There's actually a major industry for exactly this, not in the way I described it, but there are entire publishing houses predicated upon waiting for significant works to come into the public domain and then to resell them because they don't have to pay a licensing fee. They usually will do them in a fancy leather-bound cover and you gild the pages and things and make it sort of a collector's edition. That's one format. Another format is the really cheap mass market paperback for high school and college classes to the extent that those use real hard paperbacks anymore. Worldwide, Steamboat Willie is protected in some countries until at least 2042. And these movies are likely going to be on the Internet. So can Disney stop them in other countries? Disney can stop them being shown in certain countries. The copyright laws, because of certain international treaties, are broadly similar. But the extent of the term of the copyright, its duration, does have minor variances um, in countries. Most countries are similar to the U.S. model. We now, with new works, give a duration of, um, for a corporation, a corporately owned copyright, um, 95 years from publication. If it's owned by the author, it's the life of the author plus 70 years, sort of violating the Mark Twain premise. But there are other countries that have picked other dates, and some of them are shorter than ours, and some of them are longer. And so in those countries with longer copyright terms, you're going to have to be careful. And the Internet is one place where you can run afoul of that. You just got to be careful to make sure that you block it going into those countries. Public Domain Day, January 1st. Always an interesting time to talk to you, Terry. Thanks so much. That's Terrence Ross, a partner at Catanuchin Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.